This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins Chapter 5 The first thing I did, after we were left alone together, was to make a third attempt to get up from my seat on the sand. Mr. Franklin stopped me. There is one advantage about this horrid place, he said. We have got it all to ourselves. Stay where you are, Betteridge. I have something to say to you. While he was speaking, I was looking at him, trying to see something of the boy I remembered in the man before me. The man put me out. Look as I might, I could see no more of his boy's rosy cheeks than of his boy's trim little jacket. His complexion had got pale. His face, at the lower part, was covered, to my great surprise and disappointment, with a curly brown beard and moustachios. He had a lively, touch-and-go way with him, very pleasant and engaging, I admit, but nothing to compare with his free and easy manners of other times. To make matters worse, he had promised to be tall, and had not kept his promise. He was neat and slim and well-made, but he wasn't by an inch or two up to the middle height. In short, he baffled me altogether. The years that had passed had left nothing of his old self, except the bright, straightforward look in his eyes. There I found our nice boy again, and there I concluded to stop in my investigation. "'Welcome back to the old place, Mr. Franklin,' I said. "'And the more welcome, sir, that you have come some hours before we expected you.' "'I have a reason for coming before you expected me,' answered Mr. Franklin." I suspect, Betteridge, that I have been followed and watched in London for the last three or four days, and I have travelled by the morning instead of the afternoon train, because I wanted to give certain dark-looking stranger the slip. These words did more than surprise me. They brought back to my mind, in a flash, the three jugglers, and Penelope's notion that they meant some mischief to Mr. Franklin Blake. "'Who's watching you, sir, and why?' I inquired. "'Tell me about the three Indians that you've had at the house today,' said Mr. Franklin, without noticing my question. "'It's just possible, Betteridge, that my stranger and your three jugglers may turn out to be pieces of the same puzzle.' "'How do you come to know about the jugglers, sir?' I asked, putting one question on top of another, which is bad manners, I own. "'But you don't expect much from poor human nature, so don't expect much from me.' "'I saw Penelope at the house,' says Mr. Franklin.' And Penelope told me, Your daughter promised to be a pretty girl in Betteridge, and she's kept her promise. Penelope has got a small ear and a small foot. Did the late Mrs. Betteridge possess these inestimable advantages? The late Mrs. Betteridge possessed a good many defects, sir, says I. One of them, if you'll pardon my mentioning it, was never keeping to the matter in hand. She was more like a fly than a woman. She wouldn't settle on anything. She would just have suited me, says Mr. Franklin. I never settle on anything either. Betteridge, your edge is better than ever. Your daughter said as much when I asked for particulars about the jugglers. Father will tell you, sir, he's a wonderful man for his age, and he expresses himself beautifully. Penelope's own words, blushing divinely. Not even my respect for you prevented me from... Well, never mind. I knew her when she was a child, and she's none the worse for it. Let's be serious. What did the jugglers do? I was something dissatisfied with my daughter, not for letting Mr. Franklin kiss her. Mr. Franklin was welcome to that. 
but for forcing me to tell her foolish story at second hand. However, there was no help for it now but to mention the circumstances. Mr. Franklin's merriment all died away as I went on. He sat knitting his eyebrows and twisting his beard. When I had done, he repeated after me two of the questions which the chief juggler had put to the boy, seemingly for the purpose of fixing them well in his mind. Is it on this road and on no other that the English gentleman will travel today? Has the English gentleman got it about him? I suspect, says Mr. Franklin, pulling a little sealed paper parcel out of his pocket, that it means this, and this, Betteridge, means my Uncle Herncastle's famous diamond. Good Lord, sir, I broke out. How do you come to be in charge of the wicked colonel's diamond? The wicked colonel has left his diamond as a birthday present to my cousin Rachel, says Mr. Franklin, and my father, as the wicked colonel's executor, has given it in charge to me to bring down here. If the sea, then oozing in smoothly over the shivering sand, had been changed into dry land before my own eyes, I doubt if I could have been more surprised than I was when Mr. Franklin spoke those words. The colonel's diamond left to Miss Rachel, says I, and your father, sir, the colonel's executor. Why, I would have laid any bet you like, Mr. Franklin, that your father wouldn't have touched the colonel with a pair of tongs. Strong language, Betteridge. What was there against the colonel? He belonged to your time, not to mine. Tell me what you know about him, and I'll tell you how my father came to be his executor, and more besides. I've made some discoveries in London about my uncle Herncastle and his diamond, which have a rather ugly look to my eyes, and I want you to confirm them. You called him the wicked colonel just now. Search your memory, my old friend, and tell me why. I saw he was in earnest and I told him. Here follows the substance of what I said, written out entirely for your benefit. Pay attention to it, or you'll be all abroad when we get deeper into the story. Clear your mind of the children, or the dinner, or the new bonnet, or what not. Try, if you can't, forget politics, horses, prices in the city, and grievances at the club. I hope you won't take this freedom on my part amiss. It's only a way I have of appealing to the gentle reader. Lord, haven't I seen you with the greatest authors in your hands? And don't I know how ready your attention is to wander when it's a book that asks for it, instead of a person? I spoke a little way back of my lady's father, the old lord with the short temper and the long tongue. He had five children in all, two sons to begin with, then, after a long time, his wife broke out breeding again, and the three young ladies came briskly one after the other, as fast as the nature of things would permit. My mistress, as before mentioned, being the youngest and best of the three. Of the two sons, the eldest, Arthur, inherited the title and the estates. The second, the Honourable John, got a fine fortune left for him by a relative and went into the army. It's an ill bird, they say, that fouls its own nest. I look on the noble family of the Herncastles as being my nest, and I shall take it as a favour if I am not expected to enter in, into particulars on the subject of the Honourable John. He was, I honestly believe, one of the greatest blackguards that ever lived. I can hardly say more or less for him than that. He went into the army, beginning in the guards. He had to leave the guard before he was two and twenty, but never mind why. They are very strict in the army, and they were too strict for the Honourable John. 
he went out to India to see whether they were equally strict there, and to try a little active service. In the matter of bravery, to give him his due, he was a mixture of bulldog and gamecock with a dash of the savage. He was at the taking of Seringatapam. Shortly afterwards he changed into another regiment and, in the course of time, changed into a third. In the third he got his last step as lieutenant-colonel and, getting that, got also a sunstroke and came home to England. He came back with a character that closed the doors of all his family against him, my lady, just then married, taking the lead and declaring, with Sir John's approval of course, that her brother should never enter any house of hers. There was more than one slur on the colonel that made people shy of him, but the blot of the diamond is all I need to mention here. It was said that he had got possession of his Indian jewel by means which, bold as he was, he didn't dare acknowledge. He never attempted to sell it, not being in need of money, and not, to give him his due again, making money an object. He never gave it away, he never even showed it to any living soul. Some said he was afraid of its getting him into a difficulty with the military authorities. Others, very ignorant indeed of the real nature of the man, said that he was afraid, if he showed it, of its costing him his life. There was, perhaps, a grain of truth mixed up with this last report. It was false to say that he was afraid, but it was a fact that his life had been twice threatened in India, and it was firmly believed that the moonstone was at the bottom of it. When he came back to England and found himself avoided by everybody, the moonstone was thought to be at the bottom of it again. The mystery of the colonel's life got in the colonel's way, and outlawed him, as you may say, among his own people. The men wouldn't let him into their clubs. The women, more than one, whom he wanted to marry, refused him. Friends and relations got too near-sighted to see him in the street. Some men in this mess would have tried to set themselves right with the world, but to give in, even when he was wrong, and had all society against him, was not the way of the Honourable John. He had kept the diamond in flat defiance of assassination in India. He kept the diamond in flat defiance of public opinion in England. There you have the portrait of the man before you, as in a picture, a character that braved everything, and a face, handsome as it was, that looked possessed by the devil. We heard different rumours about him from time to time. Sometimes they said he was given up to smoking opium and collecting old books. Sometimes he was reported to be trying strange things in chemistry. Sometimes he was seen carousing and amusing himself among the lowest people in the lowest slums of London. Anyhow, a solitary, vicious, underground life was the life that the Colonel led. Once, and once only, after his return to England, I saw him myself, face to face. About two years before the time of which I am now writing, and about a year and a half before the time of his death, the Colonel came unexpectedly to my lady's house in London. It was the night of Miss Rachel's birthday, the 21st of June, and there was a party in honour of it, as usual. I received a message from the footman to say that a gentleman wanted to see me. Going up into the hall, there I found the Colonel, wasted and worn and old and shabby, and as wild and wicked as ever. "'Go up to my sister,' says he, "'and say that I have called to wish my niece many happy returns of the day.' 
He had made attempts by letter, more than once already, to be reconciled with my lady. For no other purpose I am firmly persuaded than to annoy her. But this was the first time he had actually come to the house. I had it on the tip of my tongue to say that my mistress had a party that night, but the devilish look of him daunted me. I went upstairs with his message, and left him, by his own desire, waiting in the hall. The servants stood staring at him at a distance, as if he was a walking engine of destruction, loaded with powder and shot, and likely to go off among them at a moment's notice. My lady had a dash, no more, of the family temper. Tell Colonel Herncastle, she said, when I gave her her brother's message, that Miss Verinder is engaged and that I declined to see him. I tried to plead for a civiler answer than that, knowing the Colonel's constitutional superiority to the restraints which govern gentlemen in general. Quite useless. The family temper flashed out at me directly. When I want your advice, says my lady, you know that I always ask for it. I don't ask for it now. I went downstairs with the message, of which I took the liberty of presenting a new and amended version of my own contriving, as follows. My lady and Miss Rachel regret that they are engaged, Colonel, and beg to be excused having the honour of seeing you. I expected him to break out, even at that polite way of putting it. To my great surprise, he did nothing of the sort. He alarmed me by taking the thing with an unnatural quiet. His eyes, of a glittering bright grey, just settled on me for a moment, and he laughed, not out of himself like other people, but into himself, in a soft, chuckling, horribly mischievous way. "'Thank you, Betteridge,' he said. "'I shall remember my niece's birthday.' With that, he turned on his heel and walked out of his house. The next birthday came round, and we heard he was ill in bed. Six months afterwards, that is to say, six months before the time I am now writing of, there came a letter from a highly respectable clergyman to my lady. It communicated two wonderful things in the way of family news. First, that the colonel had forgiven his sister on his deathbed, Second, that he had forgiven everybody else, and had made a most edifying end. I have myself, in spite of the bishops and the clergy, an unfeigned respect for the church, but I am firmly persuaded at the same time that the devil remained in undisturbed possession of the Honourable John, and that the last abominable act in the life of that abominable man was, saving your presence, taking the clergyman in. This was the sum total of what I had to tell Mr. Franklin. I remarked that he listened more and more eagerly the longer I went on. Also that the story of the Colonel being sent away from his sister's door, on the occasion of his niece's birthday, seemed to strike Mr. Franklin like a shot that had hit the mark. Though he didn't acknowledge it, I saw that I had made him uneasy, plainly enough in his face. "'You have had your say, Betteridge,' he remarked. It's my turn now. Before, however, I tell you what discoveries I have made in London, and how I came to be mixed up in this matter of the diamond, I want to know one thing. You look, my old friend, as if you didn't quite understand the object to be answered by this consultation of ours. Do your looks belie you? No, sir, I said. My looks, on this occasion at any rate, tell the truth. 
In that case, says Mr. Franklin, suppose I put you up to my point of view before we go any further. I see three very serious questions involved in the Colonel's birthday gift to my cousin Rachel. Follow me carefully, Betteridge, and count me off on your fingers if it will help you, says Mr. Franklin, with a certain pleasure in showing how clear-headed he could be, which reminded me wonderfully of old times when he was a boy. Question the first. Was the Colonel's diamond the object of a conspiracy in India? Question the second. Has the conspiracy followed the Colonel's diamond to England? Question the third. Did the Colonel know the conspiracy followed the diamond, and has he purposely left a legacy of trouble and danger to his sister through the innocent medium of his sister's child? That is what I am driving at, Betteridge. Don't let me frighten you. It was all very well to say that, but he had frightened me. If he was right, here was our quiet English house, suddenly invaded by a devilish Indian diamond, bringing after it a conspiracy of living rogues set loose in us by the vengeance of a dead man. There was our situation, as revealed to me in Mr. Franklin's last words. Whoever heard the like of it, in the nineteenth century mind, in an age of progress, and in a country which rejoices in the blessings of the British Constitution, nobody ever heard the like of it, and, consequently, nobody can be expected to believe it. I shall go on with my story, however, in spite of that. When you get a sudden alarm of that sort that I had got now, nine times out of ten the place you feel it is in your stomach. When you feel it in your stomach, your attention wanders and you begin to fidget. I fidgeted silently in my place, on the sand. Mr. Franklin noticed me, contending with a perturbed stomach or mind, which you please, they mean the same thing, and, checking himself just as he was starting with his part of the story, he said to me sharply, What do you want? What did I want? I didn't tell him, but I'll tell you in confidence. I wanted a whiff of my pipe and a turn at Robinson Crusoe. End of chapter 5